All right. We have We're going to start on page 102. I think you have me the rest of the time today. And we have this topic the rest of the time. So So the question is when you have a counselee, how do you go from listening to somebody's story to interpreting that story from the Bible and then to a Bible passage and back to the person? Right. So how do you transition between listening to talking from the Bible, from talking from the Bible to the particular person? That's the goal, and we call this counsel the word from the text to the counselee, right? In fact, we would say it this way. The goal is to demonstrate the necessary steps to take a text and use it appropriately in counseling. If we're going to be called biblical counselors, then we better be biblical, right? The last thing we want to do is model a poor view of using the scriptures. We don't want to model taking the Bible and inappropriately in terms of the text we use or the interpretation we give it, using it with the counselee. I grew up in the 1970s and there was way too much of that except it wasn't in counseling, it was from the pulpit. And people made all kinds of applications and only for me to get older and realize that's not in the Bible, right? There was all kinds of things they said in the terms of the way you should live, what you should do, what you should wear. But the Bible didn't say any of those things. It was hard to distinguish between what a pastor thought was good application and actually what God said. Well, heaven forbid that we would ever do that with our counselees. Right? We want them to understand what the Bible says, and we want, so we have to understand it, and then we want them to know how to apply it in counseling. So nothing is better than knowing and understanding the biblical text. For all biblical counselors, the text is primary. You must know the text. That's where you begin. That's where you live. I appreciate the way I personally have done it over the years is I have focused on one text in counseling. Brother Pyatt and I both have the same philosophy, right? You don't need three texts or four texts in one conversation. You typically need one text. Something somebody can sink their teeth in, understand what you're saying, and be able to apply it to their circumstance. So we don't want too many. And I get that one text from careful study of the Bible. Right. So I prefer to learn one book at a time. So I'm not a big, I'm not a big topic guy. Right? My goal is not to learn topics. My goal is to learn the Bible. When you learn the Bible, then you'll be able to apply them 
to topics. Apply it to topics. In other words, I think you ought to start, if you're going to learn the Bible, why not start in Ephesians? Right? Everything you need to know about walking with Christ is most of all of that is in Ephesians. Right? So start by reading it every day, thinking about it. You can use a good modern version and it'll divide it into paragraphs. So take those paragraphs and put on a sheet of paper, paragraph one, read it, read it, read it, read the book multiple times, maybe a week of just reading through the book. It'll take you about 20 minutes a day. Read a book and then you start with paragraph one and say, well, what if I were to summarize paragraph one in one sentence, what would I say? What about paragraph two? What about paragraph three? And you begin to just notice the flow from paragraph to paragraph. What's that doing? It's beginning to get in your mind the pathway of how to understand the book. So you learn that. There's about 15 paragraphs in the book of Ephesians. All right, so one, one through... 1, 1 and 2 is the introduction. 1, 3 through 14 is the anthem of praise. 1, 15 to 27 is the prayer, table of contents, the Thanksgiving section. 2, 1 to 3, I think it's 20-something. I don't remember the last verse there. No, 3. I don't remember that verse number. I know what it's about. It's in the 30s. But that is uh, the body. The body's Three sections, 2, 1 to 10, 11 to 22, and then chapter 3. 3 is divided into 2, 1 to 13, and 14, I think, to 33. Then you get to 4, 1, and that's where the ethical instruction starts, or the application, and that's divided. The key word in the application is the word to walk, and so walk worthy. That's 1 to 14, no, chapter 4, 1 to 16. 17 to 32 is walk consistent. Chapter 5, 1 to 7, I think, is walk in love. 8 to 14 is walk in light. And 15 through chapter 6, verse 10, is to walk in wisdom. Then you get to chapter 6. That's 1 through 6, 9, because 6, 10 to 20 is the uh, flesh versus, not the flesh versus spirit, but it's the spiritual warfare and prayer. And then the conclusion starts at 621 and goes to the end of the book. That's the whole book of Ephesians. Once you know that, you you can't not know it, right, if you learn it. So now every time you talk with a counselee, what? You have a sense of what the Bible teaches. Now, I did one of the easier ones that I've memorized, but I can do that with multiple books of the Bible. The goal of that is to help me when I sit down with someone and talk with them when I say, oh, you know what, Ephesians 4, 32, for instance, which says, be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ has forgiven you. That would be a great verse for this counselee. Well, when I say 432, what does my brain think? Oh, well, that's in the paragraph 17 to 32. That paragraph is walking consistent. But that starts at 4, 1, because that's the ethical instruction. And if you're going to understand the application you really have to understand the body so that's there's three big ideas in the body and that comes out of the anthem of praise and so what when i begin to minister this one verse 
they get a full sense of what does it really mean and where does it sit and how do I apply it, right? It's a, that's why I think there's only, you only have time for one verse. You only have time for one paragraph. You can't do three or four of those because you would never have time to communicate that much truth. What's the goal? The goal is to make sure people understand the Bible in context. And as they learn it, then they can apply it. So if we go back to our text, nothing is better, or our notes, nothing is better than knowing and understanding the biblical text. For us, this is primary. Since we counsel from an authoritative God using a sufficient word, it's essential that we get the meaning of the text right and understand how to appropriately apply the text in a consistent manner with that meaning, which is what I was just talking to you about. Understanding the Bible involves a two-part process, interpreting and applying. Notice what Paul said in 1 Timothy 4. He says, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Meditate on these things. We're jumping a few verses. Give yourself entirely to them that your progress may be evident to all. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them that your progress may, pardon me, for in doing this you will both save yourself and those who hear you. To Titus he said, but as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. Now, I define, I teach a class, some of y'all have actually had the class I teach on how to preach and teach the Bible, expository preaching. I would suggest there are three ways in this text that we approach the Bible. First, according to Paul in verse 13, he says, give attention to reading which I would say that's read the text, right? You always want, you always want to read a text. You want to have everything you say to be based upon the word of God, right? You don't want to give people just your opinion or just explain doctrine. Why? Because we want them to be word people. We want them to learn the word, meditate on it, memorize it, understand it, and apply it. So that means we're going to have to start with the text. So give attention to reading. Then explain the meaning of the text. Right? He says here to doctrine. So we're going to explain the meaning. What does this text mean? What are the key words? What are the key ideas? And then the third thing is we're going to apply the text, which is what we would call significance. It looks like, I didn't see these notes before they were printed. It looks like there's a second three there, but that's not part of that text in your notes that you have right in front of you on page 102. So give attention to reading, to exhortation, and to doctrine. I would say... That's the critical element of teaching the Bible. That's the three things you want to do. Read a text, explain the text, apply the text. Right? People should have absolute confidence that that's what you're going to do. We were in the DR, a bunch of us, 18 of us, from Sunrise and Baptist Bible College, 
we were in the DR this past uh, month. We spent eight days there. On our final day, Pastor Jose, we call him JJ, he was driving me from where I had been to meet up with the group. And he said, hey, brother. I said, yes, sir. Uh, Let me give you a secret. And I said, oh, what's the secret? He said, you are, of all the preachers we have come in from America, you are the favorite speaker of our congregation. This is the third time I've been invited to be there. It's the second time I've taken a group from Sunrise and BBC. And I said, well, that's interesting, right? What a great compliment first, right? Praise the Lord for that. But I said, that's interesting. Why would your congregation identify me as their favorite, right? What's going on that you would say that? And his answer is, he says, because you preach simple. I said, oh, really? What do you mean simple? Big difference between simple and simplistic. I said, what do you mean simple? He said, brother, you always identify a Bible passage, you explain what it means, and then you help us apply it to living. Oh, that's what we do. You're right. You figured me out. Right? That is the goal. That's exactly what my prayer is to do. Right? That's a good simple. And I said, oh, you're so kind. Right? I'm sure they, I'm sure he says that to all the people. But what a, what a gracious thing to say. And the reality is that is the goal, right? Every time we speak, we want to speak from a text, explain what it means and apply it. Um, even if that makes you simple. Why would we do that? Well, because of these two biblical warning passages. In James chapter 3, verse 1, James gives us a pretty serious warning. I'll read it rather than quote it. It says, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. Right? If you say this is what the Bible says, then that's what the Bible needs to say. Right? Because you're going to be held accountable for it. There's some passages, there's several of us in here that are pastors and we teach and preach a lot and others, some ladies do it too in your own ministries, right? There are some times I get in the shower on Sunday mornings after I've been thinking about a sermon and I'm going to be preaching a sermon probably, I typically shower before our morning prayer group. The prayer group meets at 6.30, so it's 6, 5.30, 6 in the morning on Sunday I'm in the shower and I'm sitting there thinking through maybe just one small component of the sermon, thinking, am I going to say it this way or say it that way? Right? How am I going to explain this? Why? Because I'm accountable for what I say. Right? I can't just get up and and do it off the cuff. Up where I'm at from Kentucky, there's occasionally you hear guys say, Well, I just get up and pray the Lord fills me. Yes, but you. what are you filled with? Right? It might be what you don't want to be filled with. Um, right? You're going to have to think through that because there's stricter judgment for teachers. You say, well, Dr. Carson or Pastor Kevin, I'm only a counselor. And I would say, yes, as a counselor, what are you doing? You're teaching. 
You're saying this is what God says in relationship to the way you live and the relationship to what you do. That's why this that's why we have to get it right. Because we're speaking for God. What about Job 42 verse 7? <coughs> 42 verse 7, pardon me. Remember what God says to Job? Actually, he says it to his friends. So Job 42, the first several verses, Job is saying, boy, am I just, I've blown this, right? I've spoken about, I didn't understand it. I'm going to speak no more. Please forgive me. He says, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. And so it was after the Lord had spoken these words to Job that Lord, the Lord said to Eliphaz, he's Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar are the three friends that are interacting with Job in chapters 4 through 37. The last few, 32 to 37, you have Elihu. You say, where are you getting these details? It's what I was telling you about, right? You memorize those certain elements, and then those that way you always have them as you're talking to Counselee. But you get Elihu, who's 32 to 37, he kind of functions as a buffer, right? He's not a friend. He's not accurate. He says a few things that are true, uh, but he really is not much different than the friend's. He's not mentioned at all in this second part. Only the three friends. And he says, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, my wrath is aroused against you and your two friends. Well, why is God angry at Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar? Because, God goes on to say, you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So Job had said all kinds of bad things as well. Now, by the time we get to this verse, Job had just said, I've heard you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. I abhor myself and repent. Under extreme suffering, Job said ugly things. In chapter 31, he's got his fist in the air and he says, I'll sign my brief and I dare you to take me to court because I'll beat you. He's talking to God. So Job's not a shining example of what it means to persevere in suffering, but God's not angry at Job. Who's he angry with? He's angry with the people that were supposed to represent him. That means we need to be very careful. We're dealing with people, many of whom are going through intense suffering. They're going to say things that are not accurate at all. But what does God do? God gives them lots of grace, lots and lots of grace. But when you come along and say, well, this is what the Bible says, or this is what God believes, or this is what is right, you better be sure you know what you're talking about. All right? That's why this is so critical. So then what are the pieces? I'm going to suggest there's only two pieces. The first one is we have to know the meaning of the text. That's the read the text, explain the text. In order to explain the text, you have to know the meaning of it. Let me give you some key questions to ask to help you get to meaning. Here's the first one. What did the author mean? That is, it has to do with what the author said. That's content. Where he said what he said. That's context. And why he said it when he did. That's connection. Right? So, <laughs> what was this author thinking about? What was this author trying to do when he said this? 
So we're looking at the meaning and asking those, we're looking at the text and we're asking those questions, right? What was he hoping to communicate to this particular audience in this particular context? And what is the connection between what he said and to whom he said it? Look at the next question. How important is it to read the text carefully? Well, the text must be read careful enough to understand the author's deliberate word-by-word and phrase-by-phrase use of all the parts of the text. Right? So, you say, well, how much should I read the text? Well, you need to read it enough to understand what are the, what's the subject. What's the verb? What's the direct object and the indirect object? What, right, what's going on in this text? I'm looking for those. Are there three main verbs? Are there four main verbs? Right, what exactly are we being told to do? Right, what is expectation and what is explanation? Sometimes it's a narrative. And if you're in a narrative... Most of the time, that's not where we learn theology. It's very rare to go to a narrative for theology in the Bible, but yet I hear it in sermons often. Uh, one of the one of the most I'm trying to think how to say it. A sermon that I've heard a couple of different times, and people refer back to was about how to understand worship and it was all out of narrative from Genesis, right? So you're taking a theological concept, worship, you're looking at a narrative and you're trying to produce the content from the narrative, right? That's not the way narrative works. Narrative explains what happens. It doesn't say, should it happen? Was that unique? What are the particular contexts and should it happen again or should it happen every time right it doesn't have all those things in it so we want to be very careful how we handle narrative so you say what how important is it to read the text carefully it's crucial crucial you got to read it enough that you understand it when i teach and preach when i teach people how to teach and preach it surprises me how many of them get up and they read the text like they've never read the text before. And I say to myself, that's interesting. If you had lived in this text enough to teach it, you wouldn't be stumbling over all those words right now. right? You would actually know what we were reading. You were reading. It's your sermon. right? So why are those words used? What words are used? Here's the next question. Where is the context? What is, not where. Well, one says where, the other one says what. Let's say what. What is the context of the text? Consider the larger context by the particular passage, paragraph, theme, and book. Even take time to review where the book is in the Bible and the genre of writing. Let me explain some of those words to you. When it says, consider the larger context, right? You're in a sentence. You're in a paragraph. Now, why is it important to pick a sentence or paragraph? 
because that is nestled in a particular context that has meaning. Again, I'm going to go back to what I've grown up with. It wasn't uncommon. Uh, I'll use an example. I heard one person preach a, pass, a message out of First Peter. And in First Peter, it said, in First Peter, it said, pray. And then it talked about pray, prayer. And this man got up and said, it's important to pray. And he talked about prayer, and we started in Genesis, and we went through the whole Bible, right? We talked about prayer from maybe 20 or passages, right? It's just prayer this or prayer that or, and then it says, and it says the love, and then we did that with the word love, right? That's not preaching. Peter didn't mean 20 things about prayer. He didn't mean 20 things about love. What Peter meant is all right there in the sentence itself. So we want to settle in that sentence and say to ourselves, wonder what Peter meant. Well, that particular portion is in 1 Peter 4, 7 through 11. Well, then what? You have to know where that fits in the book. 1 Peter 1, there's an introduction. And then he, well, first we should say 1 Peter 5, I think it's 17. I could be wrong on the verse. Nope, it's it's 12. In 1 Peter 5.12, it says, By Silvanus, our faithful brother, as I consider him, have I written to you briefly, now this is critical, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. The, that is the theme verse of the whole book. When you say, what's the purpose of 1 Peter? It's to explain the true grace of God in which you stand. You say, how do we know that's the the theme of the book? Because he says, that's what I've written to you. I've written this to you so you would understand this, the true grace of God in which you stand. Aha. When I look at the book, I would say there are three types of true grace of God he's explaining. Right? In a hostile world, he's trying to explain salvation and sanctifying grace from chapter 1 all the way to 2.10. At 2.11, he transitions, and he begins to talk about what I would say is sustaining grace from chapter 2.11 all the way to 4.11. And then at 5.12 to the conclusion, which would be 5.11, that's where it ends, he's talking about shepherding grace. So, the text that that particular man used was 1 Peter 4, 7 through 11. Where is that? That's in sustaining grace. Part of three parts of grace that are part of the grace of God in which you stand. This, this particular man, right? I'm not, and let me be 1000% clear. I'm not questioning his motive. I'm just saying to you that the process he used to get the meaning of the text is less than accurate in the way that he communicated the text. I'm not, I, without any doubt in my world, he wanted the very best for us, and he wanted us to walk away loving God more and living for God more. He reads this text, and he says, it's important to pray, it's important to love, it's important to serve. All three of those things are important. 
but is that what Paul is that what Peter is actually talking about? The only way we know that is what? If we look at that text and we say, what's the book of 1 Peter about? What's each one of these paragraphs about? And how does 1 Peter 4, 7 through 11 fit in this section, 211 to 411? It's the conclusion right before you bump into 412 where you pick up the next section of the book, which is called what I would call shepherding grace. Does that make sense? That is context. Passage, paragraph, theme, and book. What is this letter? This is a letter. That's the genre. It's one of the past, it's part of many letters in the New Testament that are written with a particular purpose to a particular people group. This particular people group is to the pilgrims of the dispersion, right? So it's the folks that have left Jerusalem. And they're the ones that are the precious saints, right? Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience in speaking of the blood of Jesus Christ. So it's Christians that he's desiring to live like a Christian. So when you describe 1 Peter 4, 7 through 11, you have to say, so what is my goal of this? What is actually Peter saying? And is he talking about prayer generally? Is he talking about love generally? Is he talking about service generally? And if you're going to pick those three, why would you skip hospitality in verse 9? Right. So I get what you've done. You've picked out three key words, but at that same level, there are actually four key words. So you skipped one. Why was it because of time? Right. I don't know any of those things. I didn't go up to him at the end and say, help me understand your text. I actually at the end of it said, Lord, what did he say about prayer, love and service that I can apply to my day to day? And I walked away grateful that I'd heard him, thankful that he's my friend. Glad he preached. I've spent hours and hours and hours and all kinds of time with them. We even rented a Airbnb together and spent a week together in California. He's never heard me one time say, brother, what about that passage you preached? Why? Because I appreciate his heart. I appreciate his service. We're off to the next thing. I'm talking to you only as someone who is a teacher to you to help you think through it. Right. I'm not in any way impugning him or his efforts to serve the Lord. But you're responsible for what you do in the text. Right. Just like he is. So you want to be very careful. So what is the context? Context is king. Context is primary. If you don't know the context, then for all you know, you've taken something out of context. You've you've not said what's true. You might say what's true, but not true to that text. Right? It's not that he said anything not true that day. Just if Peter would have heard him talking, Peter would have had no idea that he was using his book to say all that stuff. Because it was not. The book gave him a theme, but that theme was disassociated with the book itself. So in counseling, that's not our goal. Our goal is to let the theme, the verse, the everything come out of a text. And then we're going to serve that to the person that we're talking to counseling correct next question does the meaning (coughs) change that's a good question 
the meaning does not change. Notice, the author intended his readers to understand what he wrote. As such, the author sets the limits on the meaning communicated in the text. It's what he consciously willed to write. This author wrote what he wanted the reader to hear and understand. And it has a meaning. So I don't read it with 2024 eyes and say, oh, well, this is, must, this is what it means to me. Because what it means to you, you don't get a vote. It doesn't matter what it means to you. Because someone else was the author under the inspiration of God. You are what? You are the discoverer. You're the one who discovers what was truth. Discover what he meant. You don't determine what he meant based on your own opinions. Does that make sense? There's one meaning. We want to say, what is that one meaning? That's where we want to spend our time and energy to determine that. In fact, look at the, <laughs> look at the next line. It says, how many meanings are in a text? Just one. What a text meant when it was written is what it will always mean because it's anchored in history. Meaning does not change. Right? So, boy, there are some texts that are so tricky. And, and I've sat with very smart men, professors, and had lengthy disagreements in this area. So I realize I'm saying what not everybody necessarily agrees with. But I'm suggesting to you that this is true. You can, you can wrestle with me later. There's one meaning per text. When it says a virgin will conceive, let's use that as the example. It either means a virgin will conceive, talking about Matthew, when Mary conceived. Or it's talking about some local girl at some point in that particular time, and you're going to figure out what virgin means. Right? Either one of those two things, but it can't mean both. Because those two things aren't equals. Right? The Bible, you don't read a text and say, well, it means this thing here, but it means something else there. Or it means something else to me. Or it means something else now. No, there's just one meaning. The Spirit had it written in a particular time, anchored in history, and that's what we're trying to discern what that is. If it can mean anything at any time, then what? Then that's what Catholics do. I'm not trying to throw a rock at Catholics, but I'm just trying to associate it with something you understand, right? They, they would have multiple meanings in a text, and that opens the door for all kinds of crazy stuff. But when you say, no, the text only has one meaning, then what you learn is I've got to figure out what that meaning is and teach it carefully. Now, a question you might ask is, well, what if you would say there's a meaning in the Old Testament, but then Paul uses it, or Peter, like in Peter in his sermon at Pentecost, he uses the text and he applies it in a different way. Then I would say there's a meaning in the Old Testament, and now the whole, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we get more information. But both texts stand on their own feet. 
right? We want to be careful. We're going to show you a process here in a minute. We want to be careful not to take the Old Testament, pardon me, the New Testament, and read it back into the Old Testament. Because, again, the Spirit wrote it, and it had a text anchored in history. Questions you can ask them when you read a text for meaning. The first one is, who is involved? Who are the characters in the story or episode? Who are the recipients of the letter? That's the first text. I mean, first question. Who is involved? Who are the characters? Who are the recipients? Why? Because we need to know who those people are. Because that's part of the meaning, right? That's the location. That's the individuals that were there. Uh, sometimes it's very important to understand that, especially, let's, let me give you an example. Like in the book of John, there are, in John 13 to 17, in those chapters, the context is very limiting, right? You have Jesus talking to the 11, 12, because Judas is there for the majority of it. Judas eventually leaves. Then they go out in the garden and pray. That's an 18. So you have to understand your context because when it's using we and us and those you when Jesus is talking, right? You have to understand who is actually being talked to. What does this relate to? You say, well, why would that be important? It's important when you get to a verse that says the Holy Spirit will bring everything to your remembrance. Well, is he saying that the Holy Spirit brings stuff to our remembrance that we remember things that it's hard to remember or we understand truth and the spirit is the one that helps us understand truth or is he saying that to these people that are getting ready to write the new testament are getting ready to go out and preach as new testament apostles such that as they think through their three years of being with jesus two things happen They remember it accurately so that they can reflect on it, preach it, and write it. And the Holy Spirit helps them understand the significance of it so that now they can apply it where they had a hard time applying it when Jesus said it. Now they get it. Essentially, what Jesus is saying is the Spirit's going to give you the inspiration you need to write some New Testament books, to preach what's accurate, But if you watch the pronoun use as you go through that section, you know who he's talking to. So it's important to know who are the characters involved. That's not a a promise that God's just going to bring stuff to my remembrance and that it's an accurate bringing it up and that I understand it. It's true meaning because if all that's true, then you should never have two Christians who have two separate meanings. If the Spirit is the one giving us both meaning, then something isn't accurate. So we, if we understand that text, though, then we don't have that problem. So you have to ask who's involved, who are the characters. Look at the second question. When is it taking place and where is it taking place? Here we're talking about the setting. 
that gives us a sense of what's going on. I would just, in my answer to you about John 14 to 17, I gave you the setting as part of the answer. The third question, what is the author trying to teach? And that's our word, authorial intent. What does the author intend for the person that's listening or reading to hear and understand? If you can answer those three questions, you're a long way toward getting the meaning of a text. Right? That's an important, important thing to understand. I put in a square there for you what I call a good rule of thumb. Essentially, we want to know what was said, where it was said, to whom it was said, and why it was said. Right? If you can, again, if you can do that, where, what, to whom, and why, you're going to be a long way toward being able to say this is what this text means. All right, we've got more to talk about as we talk through the process, but any particular questions related to the meaning of the text? Anything that you're confused about or I've explained in a way that isn't helpful? Right, one meaning. It's our responsibility to discover it. It does not change. It goes back to authorial intent. And we could say it's what, where, to whom, and why. I used the word genre, but I didn't define it. What is a genre? A genre is a type of writing. So in the Bible, right, We I, told us, I was in John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those are gospels, right? They're a historical narrative attached to the life of Christ. So... You handle those differently, very similar to the way you would handle Acts, right? Because that's a, his, that's a narrative as well. But when you get to Romans, now you have a different kind of book. Now it's a letter, right? So the letters of Paul, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, Philemon, all of those, we would say those are the letters of Paul. Some of them written from prison, some of them written to particular people, but those are written different. They're written to the church. They're written to some of them cyclical. They're written to uh, a church, but it was expected to travel among all the churches, right? So, so that's a particular kind of genre. Revelation is also different, right? It has to do with end times, the book of Daniel is very similar to in the Old Testament. That's We call that apocalyptic, right? So you have the prophets in the Old Testament. You have his, history in the Old Testament. Uh, the Torah, of course, is Genesis through Leviticus. So genre is a type of writing. History, I missed that one, right? So in the Old Testament, the closest thing to his, uh, wisdom, I think I just said history, the closest thing to wisdom in the Old Testament would be James, but in the, pardon me, in the New Testament, in the Old Testament, it would be Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. That would be the wisdom literature. Um, so just different parts. 
you're going to approach that a little bit differently in terms of what you're looking for and how you're looking for it. In narrative, you're primarily looking at the discourse, right? So who is talking? What are they talking about? What's the point of what they're talking about? How do they interact with others? So your outline is going to be associated with the change in narrative. In the epistles, you're looking for stuff like what are the main verbs? What is he telling us to do? What's an explanation? So how do we understand it, right? You're doing those kinds of things. It just depends where you... So that's why genre is important. It depends where you're at and what you're looking for. All right, any question, Any other thoughts or questions? All right, let's move on then to talk about application or significance. We're in middle of 103. What are we talking about there? Well, the application or significance relates in that first Timothy text to, to Paul, from Paul to Timothy. It would be the exhortation. Right? This is how do we understand it? How do we apply it? Well, there's several things. Let's begin with this one. The first issue is what is the context or situation? Now, catch this. Of the interpreter, that is your counselee, we're not talking about of the author anymore. We've just transitioned. We're looking for what is the situation of my person sitting in front of me, my counselee. Right? If I'm talking to a person, they may be a single adult. They may be a widower, someone who's divorced. They may be uh, this. I keep saying they, but it's an individual I'm talking about. So he or she may be um, a dad or a mom, right? So, and what is their circumstance? What are they coming to ask me about, right? So that's understanding their situation. The interpreter, again, that's going to be me and my counselee should find the relationship of the meaning to his or her situation, right? So if I'm in a particular passage, now the question is, how does what this passage means, how does that relate to this person's situation? Let's look use the book of James. If James chapter 1, in verse 1, who are the people involved? Let's ask our questions from earlier. Who is involved? It is James. That's the half-brother of Jesus. He's writing to the people scattered abroad. They're first-century Christians who were most of them were there on the day of Pentecost or just after. They've been in Jerusalem. Persecution has started, and now they're running all over. Uh, they're running all over the near uh, Middle East. And so, Asia Minor, James says it's to the 12 tribes scattered abroad. That's who he's talking about. It's those first century Pentecost Christians. And he begins by saying, count it joy, my brothers, when you fall into that you're in these various pressured circumstances. So he's writing to people who are in tough circumstances. Now, the meaning, the context of the meaning is associated with people who are running for their lives, 
across Asia Minor, and they're being persecuted. A lot of them are being stolen from by the rich. They're taking them to court, right? They're having a hard time. They're, most of them are very poor. That's the Bible context. But when I'm talking to an individual, this person may say, well, I'm in a significant trial right now. I just had uh, one that happened yesterday. A particular man I know uh, had an accident at work. Something blew him over with the yesterday's wind. He fell and hit his head and his ear, and it's produced all kinds of physical difficulties. So he's in a various trial. So who is involved? That's my James question. These are people in a very significant trial. When is it taking place? Where is it taking place? In first century with those people that were in Jerusalem and now they're scattered. What is the author trying to teach? He's trying to help them live life in a way that grows them into their sanctification. We can say that a lot of different ways through those five chapters. So that's what I answered about meaning. Now I'm down here interpretation. What is the context or situation of the person I'm talking to? Well, this person has been blown over by the wind, and now he's got a medical emergency, a medical situation. What is the relationship of this text to that person's situation? This person's in what? What do they share? A pressure-filled circumstance. Right? So that's my shared situation. Next thing. The interpreter uses the meaning that is consistent with the passage and applies it to his situation, which may be quite different. The two things I just described to you are quite different. Right? What's going on with this man blown over by the wind? And what's going on with those folks running across Asia Minor? Those are quite different. But what they share is a pressure-filled circumstance to help them become more like Jesus. So I'm going to use the meaning. What is it in verse 2? It says, count it all joy when you go through this. Why? Because the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its finished work so that you'll be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. In other words, you'll become more like Jesus, which is what verse 18 is saying. So I use that meaning, and I'm talking to my friend here that just got blown over, and now he's working through this brain injury, which is quite different, but I'm going to, if I choose to use James 1 with him, what am I going to be saying? Count it pure joy to go through this because God's goal in this is for you be, to be complete. So that you'll become more like Jesus, verse 18, so that you'll be a first fruit of his creatures. So different circumstances, but the meaning, sometimes we call it timeless truth. The timeless truth of the meaning of this text crosses generations and it can be applied in this person's life, in this person's situation. There can be several or many applications, meaning (coughs) 
My apologies. Meaning, my wife yesterday morning flew to Lubbock because her aunt died. So she's in Lubbock, Texas with her mom and her sister and her brother. And they're working through the death of her aunt, my, my mother-in-law's sister. That's a complete different situation. But the same text can apply to that situation. So the way this one gentleman may respond consistently with the text with a brain injury may be at the nuance level quite different than you'd respond to the death of someone in a different instance. But the meaning applies to both, but the specific application of both groups will be different. How many meanings? One meaning, but as it hits the ground, as it actually impacts the heart and feet and the mouth and the hands, it has a different look. So we're looking for what's consistent with those two. There can be many of those. It's important to make sure that the meaning and application are consistent with each other. If we say this is what the author intended and this is the way, what it means, then we want to make sure that how we apply it in someone's life is consistent as well. We'll give you some examples of that. All right, what are some questions to ask then to help figure out the application? Here's one. What is the relationship of the meaning to the counselee's situation? Pardon me. In the situation we were just in, it would be they're in they're both in pressure-filled circumstances. Number 2. What do these verses reveal about God? Who he is or what he does? Here you're setting up the scenario so that you understand there's a bigger issue at hand, not just your present problem or situation. What do these verses reveal about God? God allows pressure-filled circumstances to enter the life of his believers, of his followers, so that they can become like Jesus so that they grow in their sanctification. You can say it multiple ways. So I'm asking what these verses reveal about God. There's several things, but one would be that he puts you in a circumstance that's full of pressure to help you grow to become more like Jesus. Number three, what do these verses reveal about people? Me, my counselee, or people in general. Well, that it reveals that we're going to go through pressure. And that pressure is meant to help us, to grow us, to change us. And we may not know how to do that. So verse 5, right, I stopped at verse 4. Verse 5 then says, So if you lack wisdom, ask God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. So one thing, one answer to verse 3 may be, I mean, number 3 here, it reveals that in the midst of these pressured situations, people need to be praying about wisdom. I'm saying, God, give me wisdom to know how to respond. Number four. What should I resolve to do in response to these verses or passage? What is explicit in the text? What is implicit? What looks wise as a result of the passage's meaning? Now, here's where we're going to divide it 
right? The person with the brain injury, these answers may be a little bit different than the person dealing with grief in Lubbock, Texas, right? So now we're getting down to the very specific application and we want to be careful. Look, it says, what should I resolve to do? The only thing you're told to do is to let patience have its finished work, verse 4. And verse 5, if you don't have wisdom, ask God. So that's what we're supposed to do. That's explicit in the text. When it says what is implicit, now what are we talking about? We are sliding into wisdom. So as I help my counselee think about it, if it's not explicit, if it's only implicit, now I want to back away from speaking authoritatively a bit. Because if I believe implicitly in this text, it means this, and I give them an application. But the text isn't clear about that. It's just me applying my wisdom, right? They're supposed to be praying for wisdom, but I'm the counselor. So I apply my wisdom and I say, well, this text may say you need to do this. I want to be very cautious, very careful, because I don't want this person to think that God's telling them to do something when in reality, it's just the wisdom of the counselor. It's implicit. It's not specific. So I want to be very careful how far I go and how much I say. Fifth question, how does this passage help me in loving God or loving my neighbor? I think that's just a great way to, again, to think through a particular text. So any specific questions about application? Implication, application, I use those words interchangeably. Um. Uh, you have one meaning, that one meaning, we're going to, in some instances, students would here have heard me call this timeless truth. We're going to take that and apply it, the application, that's going to be the implications application, and that's situation specific. It could be explicit, it could be implicit, but where it's implicit, we're going to handle that carefully as wisdom. We're not going to be explicitly saying, so you must do this or you must not do this. Um, let me give you a, a quick real world example. And then we're going to take about a five minute stretch break and then we'll jump back into this lecture. Uh, a real world example would be Alistair Begg in this issue when grandma called and said or sent a letter and said, should I go to the transgender wedding or not? There is no verse in the Bible that answers that. So you've got to go to your verse that you believe through the connection we're talking about connects to give us some biblical principles forward. And when you're Alistair Begg, you have to give what? You have to give the broad sense of application. You could do this. You could do that. Why? Because we're dealing with implicit. The text doesn't say do it or not do it. Doesn't talk about it anywhere. So we're taking our wisdom. We're applying it in someone else's situation. 
knowing what? That we're going to be held accountable for Jesus. And then if you go online and talk about it, you might be held accountable before lots of people. So you want to be very gracious and very careful when you give an opinion. Now, I would have not been black and white. I would have said, I think the range of options you have are these. And this is why I think you should choose this option over that option. I would have given the options, given my reasoning behind them. But if the Bible doesn't say, do not go to a transgender wedding, then I'm not going to say it is a sin for you to go to a transgender wedding. Because I'm not going to call sin what the Bible doesn't call sin. But I may say, I think there are 10 good reasons to choose to do something different. And we can do that in ways that are equally helpful as if you were to attend. So you might consider this or you might consider going and buying a gift and dancing and celebrating and have a great time. You may consider that too. But this is what I think you need to think about. Does that make sense? By the time it got communicated publicly... It didn't sound like people received it as wisdom. They received it more as explicit. Alistair Begg tried to explain it again on a whole nother sermon, and he kind of tripled down on his position and brought up evangelism and made it all about evangelism when, when the real issue isn't evangelism. The issue is going to a transgender wedding. Does that imply that you agree with the wedding or not right there was a different issue people were talking about but all of it had to be handled in wisdom and there's no black and white answer in any of it i have a strong opinion but if my counselee was asking i would say i have a strong opinion here's my opinion based on these principles but i'm not going to speak as if i'm in ex cathedra mode because the bible doesn't speak to it Right, so I think that's where this hits the ground. You need a text. Then you have to say, if the text means this, how does it apply? These five questions helps you think through that. Okay.